Good morning, my fellow feminists, and welcome to the very first episode of my podcast, Feminism for Newbies, the show where we talk all things introductory feminism. From interviews to data to history, we've got you covered. I'm your host, Izzy Newman. Let's get into the show. My guess is that you clicked on this podcast because you're interested in feminism. Of course, I can't teach you everything that you're going to want to know if you want to be a feminist, but I can certainly get you started. We'll talk about feminist history in the United States and give some critiques to that history and the feminisms that were popular during those times. Um, I'm going to share an interview um, with one of my close friends with you guys. And then finally, I'm going to share books and resources that are more modern that can, that can get you guys started. Before we get into this episode, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about myself and what inspired me to start this podcast. First of all, I'm a feminist, but it hasn't always been that way. Growing up, I never considered myself a feminist, but that's only because no one was teaching me about it. I grew up around so many strong women, but in my small conservative town, politics, feminism, and activism weren't popular topics. And now that explanation is put on pause for a little bit because I can now hear some Christmas music coming from the kitchen along with slicing of some vegetables. Thank you, Dad. I'll check back in in a little bit. Okay, back to my explanation. So the reason that I made this podcast is because I want to make feminism more accessible to everyone. Um, as many of you know, and as I'll discuss a little bit more later, feminism used to be something that was really intimidating to me. I was making all of the cliche assumptions that you might assume. I thought that feminists were either really smart, scholarly women strictly, or that they were crazy ladies with lots of armpit hair, which of course there's nothing wrong with. But I now know that anyone can be a feminist. It doesn't matter what your gender identity is, what your race is, what your age is. None of that matters. What does matter is that we all come together for a common cause. All right, now let's circle back to hometown and high school experiences. The first time feminism was ever really talked about in my high school was in March of 2017 when the Women's March on Washington happened. Before the Women's March and before we started talking about it in school, I knew that there was a small group of feminists there. Um, there were a few girls in my English class who were really passionate about these things and who participated in lots of activism, and I was desperate to learn more about these girls and their cause. A group of about five or six of these girls had gone to the March on Washington, and when they got back, they shared a slideshow of pictures and stories and talked all about the people that spoke there. The town that I come from is pretty small, not very diverse, and issues of inequality aren't talked about very much, so that's definitely part of the reason I didn't really know about feminism before these girls had shared with us what they knew and, and what they were passionate about. I know you're probably wondering what the Women's March on Washington even is and why it's important. Well, let me get into that a little bit. The Women's March on Washington in 2017 took place on January 21st, the day after the inauguration of Donald Trump. Surprise, surprise. Here's why that day is so important. So as you probably know, Donald Trump historically has been very anti-woman and um, racist and anti-LGBTQ community and... Obviously, that's caused some issues in the feminist community. In attempts to combat the new legislation that was likely to come, people were protesting civil rights, immigrant rights, healthcare reform, reproductive rights, and all sorts of other things. 
Donald Trump's inauguration caused such an upset that this movement was actually international. Cities around the world were protesting. There were protests in Oslo, Norway, Toronto, Canada, Geneva, Switzerland, and many more. And I can't leave out the fact that it was the largest single-day protest in United States history. Thank you, Wikipedia, for that fun fact. So now that you know a little bit more about the Women's March on Washington in 2017, you can probably understand why it was a bit of a feminist awakening for me. The following year, feminism wasn't something that was on the top of my mind as much. Of course, I still thought about it and wondered about it and wanted to know more from these women, but it just wasn't really a priority for me, or it didn't seem like it was. When I got to college, on the other hand, I found out that it's kind of unavoidable. I took so many classes that were so challenging for me in so many ways because my perspective was so narrow, especially coming from the town that I did. So I immediately was just overwhelmed with all of this new knowledge. And and part of that was having so many feminist professors and, and learning from all of them and being incredibly inspired. For the first time in my life, I felt so incredibly empowered by women. I saw all of these women with PhDs teaching these incredible, amazing, informative classes and with such open minds and open hearts, and I just was blown away. In order to understand feminism a little bit more, um, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about feminist history in the United States. And I won't go too in-depth, but I'll tell you about a few of the important events that have happened. Let's start off with an event that happened just 20 minutes away from our campus um, in Seneca Falls, New York, the Seneca Falls Convention. The Seneca Falls Convention took place in July of 1848 and was the first feminist convention in the United States. At the convention, the Declaration of Sentiments was proposed. This document, written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, was created to mock the Declaration of Independence in order to highlight issues of women's rights and civil rights. Ultimately, the document was signed by a hundred people, both male and female. A few notable signatures on this document are Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Frederick Douglass. The need for this convention came from traditional gender roles that kept women in their homes doing domestic work, out of the workforce, out of positions of power, and away from voting, along with so much more. Now let's fast forward about a hundred years later, during World War II. When the United States entered World War II in 1941, thousands of men were being deployed, leaving their homes and jobs. The absence of these men created an entirely new market of jobs for women. Thousands of women were now introduced to jobs in factories, building and repairing airplanes, working with radios, and even in the Army Corps as nurses. The new jobs that many women were now working paid high enough wages to make them much more independent than they had been ever before. This also gave many women a feeling of freedom. This era of working women introduced Rosie the Riveter. For those of you who don't know, Rosie the Riveter was a character made for propaganda that encouraged women to work for the war. But Rosie also became an iconic figure in empowering women, proving that women could do the work that men could do. There's no question that this time in history was empowering for many women. But when the war was over, most of these women lost the jobs that they had been trained to do and worked so hard for. They were sent back to their domestic duties, unable to find work with their new skills because the jobs went back to men. Most of the feminist movement up until this point in history had been focused on the rights of white women, And while feminism is often portrayed as an intersectional, inclusive movement, for a long time, if you weren't an upper-class or middle-class white woman, you weren't always welcome. 
This inspired me to come up with a little project for myself. I decided to ask some of my friends and family who came to mind when they thought of important feminist activists in United States history. Out of the six people I asked, almost every person either said Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. While these women were important figures in women's suffrage and rights, they are both white women who have been criticized for their racist tendencies. Only one person gave me a name that I was hoping might come up, Ida B. Wells. Having five out of the six people I asked about historical feminists mention the name of a white woman is exactly why I highlight Ida B. Wells. She was an African-American woman who was born enslaved and became one of the most famous women's rights and civil rights activists in our country. Ida B. Wells was an educator, writer, and leader who spent much of her time as an activist fighting for women's suffrage. Her leadership is representative of many other black women who had to fight to create their own paths of activism because their voices and experiences were not advocated for in others. I knew I couldn't continue my story without mentioning the lack of representation and knowledge on the experiences of black women in history. This leads me to my final section. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to think of the answer that you come up with in your head. You might not know the answer, and that's totally okay. All right, here it goes. Do you know when women got the right to vote? If you don't know the answer, type it in in Google and see what comes up. My guess is that Google is telling you that the answer is 1920. Now, Google isn't entirely wrong. White women did get the right to vote in 1920 because of the addition of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. But what about women who aren't white? Well, they didn't get the right to vote until 1965 because of the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And yeah, you heard me right. The rest of the women in the country had to fight for 45 more years to get the right to vote. So I was in the middle of filming, but I wanted to know if you guys can hear this. This is my cats in the background. Oh my goodness. I know that they're making very scary noises right now, but I promise that they're both fine. <laughs> Anyways, now that that's over, I wanted to talk to you guys about something else. Now I've talked to you guys a little bit about how feminist history in the United States is pretty well surrounded by white women and follows their stories. These are, for the most part, the stories that were taught in school, if we're taught any at all. If your schools and classes aren't providing you with the right tools and resources to have a comprehensive understanding of what feminist history in the United States was actually like for more than just white women, you have to teach yourself. But that's also why I'm here. For the next part of this podcast, we're going to talk about books. The books that I'm going to tell you guys about today probably aren't books that you've read in school but they've got a wide range of topics. We're gonna to talk about data and science, intersectionality, and some different ideals and theories in feminism. So the first book that we're gonna talk about today is Data Feminism by Catherine Dignizio and Lauren Klein. So the reason I wanted to talk to you guys today about the book Data Feminism is because there's a real lack of representation of women in data and science. Another reason I chose this book is because it discusses so many important topics that go beyond many people's basic understandings of feminism. I bet a lot of you didn't know that feminism is a really important part of data. You probably even heard people say things like, science is always right, or the truth is in the numbers. Well, what if I told you that not all science and data are based in an arguable fact? Now, I'm not trying to tell you that all data and science is wrong, but there are biases in more places than you might expect. Shocking, I know. 
In the book, there's a chapter called What Gets Counted Counts, and it talks about a specific example of how biases manifest in data. Computer programs, websites, and apps like Facebook and Instagram or any other place you might have to make a personal profile are all a product of the biases that make issues like having to pick your gender when creating a profile. You might only have the option male or female, and maybe you don't identify as either of those. When data is collected from places like this that have personalized profiles, sometimes if you don't have the option to pick the correct identity for yourself, that data is going to be collected incorrectly. Regardless of the incorrect data, these types of websites create a place where people feel incredibly isolated. It's really strange when you have to make an account, but you can't identify how you want to identify. So without feminists who worked in data and science and math, biases like this would be much harder to pick out and probably much less likely to be picked out. Next time you're on the internet and you find yourself having to make some sort of personal profile, I encourage you to look at all of the options available in any section of this and check for the biases that might be there. These biases could be the same as my example just now. It could be about your gender, but it could be something about not having the right options for your race or ethnicity or even religion. Next, I'm going to talk to you guys about a few of the words in this book that I think are really representative of the overall theme and are really important when thinking about data and feminism. So first, let's talk about pluralism. Pluralism, in the context of this book, um, defines taking a wide variety of voices and perspectives and applying them to the data that you're collecting. So an example of pluralism that the book talks about is participatory action research and this type of research is when a researcher works alongside with the community that they're basing their research on. So rather than just observing and using these people's information to get what you need, you're going to work with them and figure out how to make the research that you're doing better for the community as well as the outcome of your project. So the next word I chose is context. And context is more of an idea, but the reason that I chose it is because I think it's a really important piece in thinking critically about what you're reading and the work you do. So this idea is a little bit more simple than our last one, but it encourages you as a reader to pay attention to where you get your sources and where the sources that you read come from. It encourages you to ask questions like, who produced this data and who does it serve? So those are just two simple words in the book, Data Feminism, but I think that they encompass the purpose of the book really well, and I think that they're good takeaways um, and good things to look out for later on in life. So once you've begun to understand how feminism and data go hand in hand, you can take what you've learned from books and words like this into any discipline. You can put it into your work, you can put it in your essays, and you can even bring it up in conversation. That's what's really awesome about feminism and data is that you can point out little things that other people might not notice. Not only that, but I think it's really important to point these things out. So the next time you're making an account and you realize that there aren't enough gender options, point it out, say something, send an email, make a phone call. That's another theme of this book is activism. And part of activism is creating books like Data Feminism and taking what you learn from them and putting them into the real world. So the contents of this next book are a little bit more complicated and maybe more for people who are interested in women's studies and academia. We are going to be talking about Black Feminism Reimagined After Intersectionality by Jennifer Nash. So intersectionality was a term produced by Black feminism, um, and it describes the oppression of people whose identities are based in multiple marginalized social groups. 
So this takes into consideration things like class, gender, sexual orientation, race, and so on. So knowing the term intersectionality is essential if you want to understand the contents of the book and to try to understand what Jennifer Nash is talking about. In her book, Nash discusses the idea that once intersectionality served the purpose of explaining and helping people understand the experiences and assemblages of people with intersectional identities, but is now used as a token word to draw attention to institutions and even has entire disciplines based on it. So the term that was once really important to, and still is really important to, black fem- feminism has now been taken over by primarily white institutions like academia in general, um, and is used to draw people in. She talks about how different courses, specifically in the humanities and women's studies, will use the title intersectionality to show that their classes are diverse and understanding, while also abusing the experiences of black women and using black women to tokenize these stories. When black women and black feminists are overworked by the academy in trying to embody their experiences just for the purpose of sharing them with other people, it delegitimizes their own experiences. So I'm going to switch paths really quick before I keep talking about the book to tell you guys about a term that I learned about in my feminist philosophy class this semester. So that term is burnout, and the article that I read about it in is Beyond Burnout by Hilma Latino, who talks about voluntary gender care work. So in this article, burnout is described as a feeling you get when you spend too much of your time putting relived trauma and pieces of your own life into other people. And in this situation, it's voluntary, of course. Black women and black feminists having to relive their lives and their situations in a performative way um, for the benefit of academia is different, but still a valid experience that I think applies to the term burnout. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about that Nash discusses in her book is the feeling that black women and black feminists, I guess specifically black feminists, feel um, when they're treated in a degrading way by academia. And, and this is defensiveness. She describes this defensiveness as a way to try to combat the way that their lives have been objectified. To conclude my podcast episode today, I wanted to talk about one more book with you guys, and that book is Down Girl by Kate Mann. So one of the main themes of the book Down Girl that I'm going to focus on today is the difference between misogyny and sexism. So let's start off by talking about how Kate Mann defines misogyny and sexism. Sexism, she says, is an ideology. It represents beliefs that women are inherently inferior to men, whereas misogyny is what perpetuates sexism. And she describes it as a system of laws that enforce sexist ideals. The United States is run and upheld by a patriarchal system. That means that our society is led by men. That being said, big corporations, laws, education, and so on have all been created by and for men. But the patriarchy enforces how we all live. Kate Mann explains why this is a problem. In her book, Mann talks about the specific experiences women go through when they don't adhere to patriarchal ideas. One of these ideas is the fact that women who ascribe to the patriarchal gender roles are rewarded and those who don't are punished. 
a subtle and incredibly frustrating way that society punishes women who deviate from patriarchal norms has me thinking back to the hashtag MeToo movement. While the hashtag MeToo movement is incredibly empowering for lots of women and has created a really supportive collective, women speaking out about the abuse that they've gone through has created an incredible amount of backlash. Often an excuse that's created for men who participate in sexual assault and abuse is that the women that were involved were wearing inappropriate clothing or they were asking for it somehow. Excuses like this are the reason that movements like the hashtag MeToo movement even exist in the first place. They shouldn't have to. Our society even teaches women that we should be inherently forgiving and caring. And as a product of this, man coined a term called empathy. Empathy is a word that describes sympathy that people give men when they do something inherently sexist or misogynistic because society teaches them that it's okay to forgive them and that they should feel bad for them. Now that I've given you an idea of the themes of the three books that I talked about today, it's up to you to read the rest. Of course, I can't tell you everything about the three books that we talked about today, but I hope what I did tell you is encouraging enough for you to get out there and try to find some books that might be specific to some of your own interests. And I hope, of course, that you'll read the rest of the books that I told you about. I've got so many favorites, and the three that I picked today are a few that have changed my view of academia, feminism, and my life in general. We covered a lot of feminist ground in today's episode, from history to data to books. But that, of course, is just the beginning of what there is to learn. I hope you learned something today from my podcast, Feminism for Newbies. And if you want to learn more, be sure to check out the Hobart and William Smith Women's Studies Instagram page. You can also find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. All of my classmates have been working so hard all semester to come up with amazing podcast ideas, so I really hope you guys go check those out. Before I sign off, I want to remind you of the sources that I talked about today. The first one is Data Feminism by Catherine Dignizio and Lauren Klein. The second is Black Feminism Reimagined After Intersectionality by Jennifer Nash. And the last is Down Girl by Kate Mann. This is just a reminder that in my next episode, I've got an awesome interview with one of my good friends, Katie. We talk all things feminist labels and we give some great advice. So if you're interested, be sure to check it out. And finally, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to Andrew Smith, who has spent hours working with our class, teaching us how to record and edit our podcast. So thank you so much, Andrew. That concludes today's episode of Feminism for Newbies. Tune in next time.